In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. I think for anyone who has lived abroad for any extended period of time, one thing that becomes very apparent is the different approaches to breakfast. So we Americans like to have a heavy breakfast with the argument, which I think is valid, that in order to confront the day, one needs a significant portion of protein, of carbohydrates. And so I remember as a kid, I actually worked in a, in a, a kid, as a teenager, I worked in a 50s diner on Cape Cod called Betsy's Diner. And it was very famous for Sunday breakfast, where they would serve bountiful quantities of pancakes. And in fact, on the front door of this diner, your classic kind of metallic diner of the 50s, there was a large neon sign flashing that would say, eat heavy. So that's sort of the American philosophy, right? Eat heavy. Wheaties, it does a body good. Cereal, pancakes, eggs, bacon, pile it on. We'll contrast that with Europe. I lived in Europe for almost a decade. And at least in Italy and in Spain, the approach is uh, a bit more frugal. We know the continental breakfast right, of continental Europe is typically a cup of coffee and a roll, perhaps a slice of cheese. That was a tough transition, right, going from <laughs> from the American breakfast to the Italian breakfast. No meat, no eggs. But it was in Rome that I heard this, this little joke about the chicken and the pig and the concept of gift, right, the concept of sacrifice. So the gift is very different when considering the differing contributions of a chicken or a pig to your breakfast plate. Because your breakfast plate, of course, involves various contributions, the contributions of wheat, of corn, but also of animals. To prepare a respectable breakfast, an American breakfast, a dish of ham and eggs, the chicken lays an egg and then walks away, whereas the pig is totally involved. Right? He gives himself entirely. Right? Two very different sacrifices, two very different gifts. One we could say is partial, and we could say detached, and the other is total. Right? The other is complete. The other is very involved. Tomorrow we will read, in the second reading, 
for the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. Perhaps Paul's most important letter, his letter to the Jews in Rome, the letter to the Romans. And he uses a language that is very much tied to animal sacrifice. He does, this is also present, for example, in the letter to the Hebrews. We know that animal sacrifice was a big part of the cult or liturgy of most ancient civilizations, not just Israel. For example, in ancient Greece, the bufonia, which is Greek for ox slangs, was a sacrificial ceremony performed in Athens as part of a religious festival held on the 14th of the midsummer month, Skyrophorion which was in either June or July, at the Acropolis. So the Acropolis in Athens, which we can all imagine right now. In the ceremony of the Bufonia, a working ox, right, an, a, a beast of burden, an ox that was used for farming, was sacrificed to Zeus. Zeus Polieus, right? Zeus, protector of the city, in accordance with a very ancient custom. And so... On the Mount Acropolis, we can imagine the pyre there, right? the, the, the pyre of fire and wood, and upon it, a beast of burden is offered to the gods and to a specific god. This ascending prayer to the gods, this ascending smoke. Well, let's imagine that pyre of fire and smoke in the city of Jerusalem. In this liturgy of the Jewish people that was ordained by God himself, that was specified to Moses in the covenant in Sinai. And the Jews in the temple liturgy in Jerusalem, there was a series of sacrifices that they were constantly offering to God. We can imagine that billow of smoke constantly going up into heaven, praising the true God, Yahweh, as a sacrifice sometimes of thanksgiving, the Todah, other times it was a sacrifice of, of penance, of, of atonement, Yom Kippur. A sacrifice of petition. A sacrifice of praise. Right? These are the ends of prayer, as we know. And the, oftentimes that sacrifice was a holocaust. Right? The original meaning of holocaust is a burnt offering to God. The Ola in Hebrew. So Paul, in his letter to the Jews in Rome, is using this imagery. Right? He's using this imagery with some very interesting twists. Because instead of speaking of bulls and ox and lambs and sheep and turtle doves, Paul is speaking to you and to me. He says, my brothers and sisters. He's speaking to the Christians. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Now, this is temple talk. Right? Clearly, Paul is referring to the temple because this is the only reality the Jews know. And he's talking about the language of sacrifice 
and of the Jewish temple, but he's applying it to Christian believers and telling them to present their own bodies as this sacrifice. In fact, he uses a Greek word, which Rafa will enjoy, which is paristimi. I'm not sure if my pronunciation is correct. Paristimi or paristimi, which is the very same word used in the Greek, in the Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, when they, whenever they talked about presenting an animal to God, right? you must present two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. No, you must present, you must present. In in all of the indications, for example, in Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, this word is constantly used: paristimi, paristimi, paristimi. Present this to God. Present that to God. Place this on the altar. Place that on the altar. Now, Paul takes this verb and he applies it to us. But why does he say a living sacrifice to God? Right? He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Because in all the Jewish liturgy, there really was no such thing as a living sacrifice. What happens in, in animal sacrifice? The animal is killed. The animal is destroyed. But you would take that sheep or that bull or that goat or that turtle dove and you would put those animals to death. And we can go into the details, but it gets a little gruesome, right? If it was a bird, you would break the neck. If it were a larger animal, you would slit the throat. And then that dead animal would be offered to God as a sacrifice. When it's a whole burnt offering, a holocaust, not only do you kill the animal, you, you, you completely consume it in fire so that there's nothing left, not a trace. Even the bones are burnt. And we know, of course, in Passover, like the Passover lamb, the blood of that lamb is poured over the altar right, to commemorate the redemption of Israel from, from slavery. Well, Paul's doing something really fascinating here. Right? He's taking all this language, but he's applying it to the individual Christian, to the individual believer, and he's saying... Present your bodies, right? Not the body of a goat. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, not a bloody sacrifice. Right? Christians aren't being told to kill themselves, but rather to offer themselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. Well, Lord, this is a first consideration for us. How are we actively seeking to make of our very lives of our behavior, of our work, of our time, of our relationships, of our very existence, a form of worship to God. How are we doing this? I think we're all old enough to realize that life involves a lot of sacrifice. It's just what life entails, right? Life entails suffering, and with it, a certain level of sacrifice for everybody. 
whether they want it or not. And I think COVID-19 has brought that to the fore. And so the question is, are our sacrifices, which are there because we, we live, because we're human, are our sacrifices alive to God? Are they living sacrifices? Are they carried out with love for him? Are our sacrifices directed to God as a form of worship? Or are the difficult things in our lives, what require sacrifice, what is difficult, are they carried out with resignation, with a kind of discouragement, with frustration, namely without a Christian spirit? Are they, in a sense, dead sacrifices, right? bereft of efficacy and life because they're done with, without love? We can drain our sacrifices of life and of love if we don't channel them towards worship. There's another temple word that Paul uses here, right, which is the word holy. Holy, which in its most basic sense, simply means to set apart, right? to separate. In, Jew, in, in Hebrew, it is kadosh. In Greek, it's hagios. To set apart. Something is holy because it is set apart. And we see this in the Catholic liturgy. You know, it was a very dramatic moment when I was ordained a priest because especially my, my, my nieces and nephews, the little ones, they were a little shocked, right, having known me as a layman, to all of a sudden see me walking around in, in what they said is a black dress. Why are you wearing a black dress? And why so many buttons? Right? 30 buttons? They would, they would take turns counting to see how many there were. Like, clearly, this person has changed in some way. In, in, in every ordination, those men are set apart for a holy function. Right? They're no longer normal human beings. <laughs> in a theological sense, right? there's a change of state. Don't worry, we're still pretty normal. But there is a sanctification, a consecration that takes place. And the church says this person is set aside for a holy use, a holy function. Just as the tribe of Levi was set apart from the 12 tribes to carry out a priestly function in the temple. Or this tabernacle, inside is a ciborium, right? the ciborium that we will take out to worship after this in benediction. Well, that bowl that holds the sacred host is a sacred vessel. It's been set apart. It has been made holy and it should never be used for any other purpose. It would be a sacrilege to use a chalice to drink your beer at the Super Bowl. Right? It, would be, it would be a terrible sacrilege. Because the chalice, the ciborium, right, these objects of sacred use have been set apart. And so, in the temple, when an animal 
was deemed to be holy, it would be set apart for sacrifice, for offering in the temple. A, a, a certain lamb was recognized as unblemished, and it would be set apart for the Passover. It was made holy. And you only offer God holy things. <coughs> That's the whole point. For a sacrifice to be acceptable, it has to be holy. And so what he's telling us is that we are going to take on this role in the new covenant. Right? The new covenant sealed in Christ's blood we take on the role that the animals took in the Old Covenant. And we're going to present our own bodies as holy. In a sense, we've all been set apart to carry out a holy function because we are a priestly people. To present our own bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him, set apart for God, who is our spiritual worship. Well, Lord, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this opportunity to participate in your covenant. We are all priests. St. Peter says this very clearly. We all have a priestly soul. We all form part of the priestly people of God. And each of us offers an unbloody sacrifice to God with our very existence, but not by default, or we have to actively do this when we present our bodies in a holy way, when we behave morally upright, when our sacrifice is holy and acceptable to God. You know, it's funny, some of us have grown up with Opus Dei all of our lives, right? I'm the, the son of two supernumeraries, and, and many people grew up with the work, and, you know, I think. St. Josemaria, his spirituality is very much uh, rooted in this idea of the priestly soul and also in this idea that, that our, the things that we do can be offered up to God. They can be pleasing to God. For example, the sanctification of our work. That's a form of worship because we, we offer up what we're doing. And especially when it's difficult, well then that offering up has more value because it requires more generosity on our part. And so, you know, kids that grew, grew up with the work, you know, sometimes they're told by their mothers when something's hard, well, offer it up, offer it up. Right? And that becomes almost like a mantra in the house. You know? Just offer it up, offer it up. And that's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful thing. But there's a danger there of not understanding what that means. And they say, well, in the Christian life, you just offer up pain. Right, that's just what you do. I offer up my pain. And so we see there's a danger of seeing our, these sacrifices as something of mere duty, to kind of grin and bear it, to tighten your teeth and just put up with things. But no, Lord, if we rightly understand this, when we offer something up, we're carrying out the greatest action that we're capable of in this life, which is divine worship, which is the liturgy. 
Every time we offer ourselves and every time we offer our difficulties to God out of love, we're realizing our priesthood. We're doing the best thing we can, the most holy action that we're capable of. Lord, we have been set apart for a holy function. We feel privileged to do this. And it's not simply when something is difficult, but really everything that we do is a form of worship when we sanctify it, even the good things. You know, Paul, in his letters, he, he, he really he thinks of all of the moral life so the morality of the Christian, as a type of liturgical act, as an act of worship. Right? So when you choose the good, when you, when you do the right thing, when you act morally upright, that's a way of worshiping God. Right? That's a way of giving God glory. I think so often we think of morality as simply a list of norms, right? a list of things you're, you can do or you can't do, mostly a list of restrictions. I think that's how a lot of people think of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. It just sounds like a lot of rules. And we forget that, that Christian morality is not simply a list of norms. It's the content of a relationship, of a friendship, of a dynamic of love. The same thing happens with worship. When we, when we hear the word worship, I think a lot of people, they see that as simply like a weekly task. So, so I, have, I have kind of my, my Google calendar. Well, on Sunday from 10 to 12 is like my worship time. Right? That's when I go to Mass. So I worship God for an hour or two, and then I just live my life for the rest of the week. And so there's the box of worship. Well, no. That's not how Paul sees it. That's not how you see it, Lord. Right? Every moral choice that we make, every decision, especially everything that we decide to do with our bodies, again, our body is the vehicle of worship, is an act of either offering ourselves to God, which is worship, or offering ourselves to sin in opposition to God. And so this is the constant choice we have. And that's how Paul concludes this, this second reading. He says, do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. So are we, offering to, are we choosing to offer ourselves to God in worship? Or are we offering ourselves to sin? Because those are the choices we have. Of course, in tomorrow's gospel, which is Matthew chapter 16, Jesus invites the disciples with, to the same choice, right, to the same decision. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Right? He's inviting them to a life of sacrifice. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
Right? Again, we hear Paul there. Whoever wishes to conform himself to this world will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? Whoever allows himself to be transformed, in Paul's words. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? Lord, we're so afraid of sacrifice. But this is the irony of it. Right? It's only through sacrifice that we actually gain our lives. It's only through sacrifice that we gain our soul. Of course, reading this quote from, from Matthew 16, I think a lot of people, at least I do, what comes to mind is A Man for All Seasons, that famous scene in Robert Bolt's play about Thomas More, where More plays off of this quote of Jesus. In the story of A Man for All Seasons, you have these two characters, Richard Rich and Thomas More. Thomas More, in a sense, begins with everything. Right? He is the, the Chancellor of England. But because he is faithful to God, and he's faithful to the truth, because he lives a moral life, and his decisions are a form of worship to God, he gradually loses the world. He loses his position, he loses his honor, he loses his riches, he loses his family, and he dies a martyr, much like John the Baptist. Richard Rich, who begins very poor, and through deception, through sin, through moral decisions that, in a sense, offer worship to sin rather than to God, he gradually rises in the ranks, and through an act of betrayal, he allows Thomas More to die. Right? And, and then he actually eventually becomes the Chancellor of England. It's like this these reversal of roles. And so after having betrayed More in court, Richard Rich is, is coming off of the, the witness stand. This is from, from the play. Then the witness may withdraw. And then More says, as R Richard Rich is coming off, I have one question to ask the witness. And so Rich stops. That's a chain of office you're wearing. May I see it? And so R Richard Rich, uh, I, think, I think he takes off the chain and Moore examines the medallion. And Moore says, the red dragon, what's this? And so Cromwell explains, Sir Richard is appointed attorney general for Wales. And so then Moore, looking into Rich's face with pain and amusement, he says, for Wales? Why, Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for Wales. <laughs> we have been set aside for a holy function, Lord. We want to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. But we also have this, this possibility, right? <coughs> in a sense, foregoing the life of sacrifice and seeking the life of, of selfishness, of comfort. And what do we end up with? A pathetic life. Choosing whales and losing our soul. We turn to Our Lady 
She who, with St. Joseph, who we see here in this beautiful Reredos, would have gone to Jerusalem every year to offer sacrifice to God. We know they did this at the birth of their son. Right? In the presentation of the child in the temple, Mary and Joseph go up to the Temple Mount with the sacrifice that was prescribed by Moses. In their case, because they were poor, it was two, two turtle doves, right? two pigeons, as it were, that were sacrificed as a kind of ransom for their son and as a purification of the mother. How Mary and Joseph would have prayed in this way, right? how they would have seen their lives as deeply connected to, to the worship of God through sacrifice. May she teach us, Mother Mary, may you teach us how to do this with our own lives and with the sacrifices that your son invites us to. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.